Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. How long have we known each other, Ken? I ever break a promise to you? I will put you in the driver's seat at Le Mans. If you just shut your mouth and let me do my thing. All right. Morning, Shelby. Morning, Molly. Fuck yours. I'll go to hell. to 24 hours of the Mon for the fifth consecutive year. Mr. Ford, Ferrari has a message for you, sir. What did he say? He said Ford makes ugly little cars in ugly factories. And uh, he called you fat, sir. We're going to bury Ferrari at Le Mans. So the great Carol Shelby is going to build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford. Correct. And how long did you tell them you needed? Two or three hundred years? Ninety days. <laughs> Ford hates guys like us because we're different. Well, we heard he's difficult. Ken? No, no, Ken's a puppy dog. Well, there's a problem. The computer will find it. Get some scotch tape and a ball of wool. What are they doing? Making your car faster. Oh, Ken Miles is not a Ford man. We're on the verge of something. And now you tell me that I can't have the best man in the world behind the wheel? Give me one reason why I don't fire everyone starting with you. Well, sir. We're lighter. We're faster. And that don't work. We're nastier. Black girl, go to war. What a plan. It's high risk. I thought the whole point was to win the damned race. If this were a beauty pageant, we just lost. Looks on everything. Jets in an open sky, a streak of gray, and a cheerful... 
loop the world into vertical time, and once again, you'll know it's time for the adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle and friends. Starring that supersonic speedster, Rocket J. Squirrel, with his pal Bullwinkle the Moose, and a host of others. Hurry, Bullwinkle! The show's about to start! I'm coming as fast as I can! Wait to the people! Yay! Now what are you doing? Sign an autograph. The thief, John Smith. But your name is Bullwinkle. I know, but that's hard to spell. Well, hello, this is uh, Jackie X. You're listening to uh, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google TampTalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreetMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. Really, you can. And if you've missed any of our past shows, go to our archive page, which happens to be NostalgicRadioAndCars.com. Good evening, Tommy. Hello, Robert. How you doing tonight? You know, they have a car wash named after you. It's called Tommy's Car Wash. You see them? They're up and down 19. Oh, where? Yeah, there's a Tommy's Car Wash, I think, in Larghetto. And then there's another one up in... Uh, oh, I got a franchise. Do yeah, I? you got a franchise. It's a car wash named after you. And a pretty nice high-end looking building, too, I might add. So, we got an exciting show for you tonight. we got a very special guest coming back uh, on the show. We're delighted to have him. And... Uh, well, you know what? There's a lot of stuff going on. And if you want to find out where all the car shows are, they're finally coming back slowly but surely. Go to flacarshows.com, and you can find out where all the car shows are throughout the complete state of Florida. And, uh, let's see, today's the 9th, so in 10 days, we have the 12-hour, 21-21, 12-hour race, Sebring. I haven't been to a race in a while. Um... In fact, I haven't been to much of anything other than a couple of little local car shows and stuff like that. So, it's about time I uh, brush up on some of those. HSR, our good friends over there, Historic Sports Car Racing, they've got uh, their event at the end of the month. It's March 31st through the 2nd, and uh, that's down at Sebring. And I'll tell you, I tell you, you know, I love vintage racing. I love racing in general, road racing, because I'm more of a road race kind of guy. But I do like NASCAR I did like NASCAR back in the old days, back when it looked like a Torino, and when it looked like a Chevelle, when it looked like a Monte Carlo, when it looked like a, you know, a, a, a Superbird, you know, or a big Galaxy or a big Pontiac or something like that. I mean, there's just something about vintage cars. Speaking of which, today I was out hanging out with a buddy of mine. He's got uh, an old Jaguar, Jaguar E-Type. Um, big shout out to my friends over there at Unique Engineering and uh, Safety Harbor. If you want a really, really good mechanic, I will tell you that uh, Tony and his son over there um, pretty thorough guys, you know, and uh, they got a hot rod Camaro over there. They're getting ready to build. A, got a 69 Camaro. I think what he's going to do is going to put an LS set up in it. And I get that. I mean, for the longest time, I was like, are you kidding me? I understand it. As long as we can preserve the cars, and if an LS makes you happy or a Coyote makes you happy or, uh, you know, one of those new Hemis, if you're in a Mopar guy and a vintage Mopar makes you happy, then I get it. You know, all the electronics, all the... The you know the six speeds for sure you know because there's nothing more exciting than having a couple extra gears to pull, um, 
So that's pretty cool. Um, big shout out to our friends down at Storage and Handling in St. Pete, Fred and the gang down there. Uh, if you need racks and stuff like that, I had to get a few racks from my shop. And uh, they're always uh, very, very helpful and go out of the way to oblige you. So that's Storage and Handling down there in, uh, in St. Pete, or I guess it's Pete, St. Pete, Clearwater, because somewhere in the middle there, not too far from uh, Steak and Shake, Quaker Steak and Lube. But at any rate, um, so we were jawjacking about these old cars, and there's a guy here in town who I've known forever. His name's Ray Hankey. Big shout out to Ray. Ray's got a shop down there. Now, Ray was just kind of a, you know, back in the old days, him and an old buddy of mine, Rick Ferguson, big shout out to Rick, too. He's got uh, Rick's European down there. He deals in, well, we call it Rick's European. Um, is uh, specializes in Porsche and Mercedes BMW vintage parts and stuff, some late model stuff, but mostly vintage. And because uh, he hasn't bought much late model, so he's always got vintage. How about that? Just by virtue of having and hanging around, saying I had the same problem. You know, at the time I I dealt with late model salvage, and now because it's so old, because I haven't sold half of it and it's still laying around, it's it's vintage. But no, no, no. Uh, I I always dealt with vintage cars, primarily Mustangs. But anyway, so Ray and Rick used to run a 69 Camaro back in the day, and I forget what they did. That, that thing ran 10-something, um, big block Chevrolet, and there's pictures of him and and what's his name over in Tampa, the Corvette guy, Lenny. Um, I can't think of Lenny's name. But anyway, uh, they all used to kind of hang out together. Man, well, these guys are late 60s, early 70s now, but that's back when everybody used to build some really bad good old American cars. But when you stop and think about what it took to get the car in the 10s, you know, even 11, 12s. I used to run 12s on the street. 514 gears, 13 to 1 small block, you know, I mean, it's just crazy stuff. And you're lucky to get in the 12s, you know. Um, if you had a light car, my, my Rancho was heavy, but uh, if you had a light car, you could probably get in low 12s, maybe even high th- high 11s. And that was flying. Today, you, got, you buy a brand new Mustang, brand new Camaro, brand new, you know, Mopar uh, Challenger or something like that with the big motors in them. They run 10 out of the box. Full power and air, six-speed gearboxes, and, you know, 170, 180 mile an hour. I mean, that's full power and air with the stereo on. That's pretty cool. So I get why everybody's taking their vintage Camaros and their vintage Mustangs and their 55 Fords and 57 Chevrolets and sticking uh, LSs and Coyotes or, or their old Dodges and putting Hemis in it. That's probably not a bad way to go these days. And um, so I, I have to adjust to that. But me personally, I'm fine with carburetors and points. You know, that's uh, I, I can I can figure that out. But Ray down there, Ray's got a big thing going. He's he's uh, really messing around with a, a lot of these LS conversions. And um, that seems to be the way to go. So if you have a question, that's probably the guy in town here, the local guy that really, you know, eats, sleeps and drinks those. And he's probably had the most success with it. Just like there's a guy up in Georgia, a friend of mine that uh, does coyote conversions. And he's done just phenomenal with that. You know, basically what the guys do is they're buying a wrecked late model vehicle you know, Ford, Chrysler, or Chevrolet, and they're pulling the whole driveline out of it. That way you get the computer, you get all the other stuff, and there's only a few little plug-and-play things that you actually have to buy over the counter to make it so that you don't have to have the whole car attached to uh, the motor. You can basically, you know, bypass a lot of the stuff because the brain thinks it's, you know, talking to a whole car, where this way you want it to just talk to the motor, the transmission, and if it's got ABS or brakes or this or that or some other weird stuff, you know. I mean, ideally, it should just be the motor and the transmission. Actually, it should just be the motor. The motor should talk to itself. The transmission is obviously manual. You know, if it's a six-speed, it doesn't need all that stuff. But anyway, that's kind of cool stuff. And... um, but he had an old Jag over there he's playing with, and I was kind of hanging out. And I just, 
you know, gravitated to the Jag just because I like sports cars, but it's just old. And it just, you know, it drove nice and had a little miss and a little sputter and, uh, you know, the usual stuff and a little sloppy going around the turns. And it's vintage. So you either you buy a vintage car and you keep it a vintage car for the experience of driving a vintage car. And those of you that have driven an old car back in the day, like I did, I remember what those cars were like when they were relatively young because um, I was relatively young. And uh, they were just really cool to drive. I mean, it's a really, a car is a time machine, okay? A vintage car takes you back to that special time and place that, uh, you know, that uh, brings us some really cool memories for you. You know, music does the same thing. And that's what's really cool about that. But anyway, speaking of music, I think Tommy's gonna, are you gonna fire up the stereo? And you're gonna, okay, good. Because I'm going to come running around there real quick because I have to drop you a note real quick. So, uh, hey, you're tuning into Nostalgia Reading Cars. Don't touch that dial. Because me and Scooby-Doo over here, we're going to be back in a few. And we're going to have our guests on here in a little bit. Okay, so don't touch that dial. And uh, stay tuned. Here's a little here's a little Robin Trower. I think today's his birthday. I used to listen to Robin Trower back in the 70s. Because I love this kind of music. Anyway, hey, tune into Nostalgia Reading Cars. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. So will I. Just about seen me. Enjoy the best brews in Tampa Bay at Dunedin Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunedin Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunedin Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunedin. Visit them online at dunedinbrewery.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than flacarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, flacarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at flacarshows.com. We are back. Um, speaking of car shows, I think I uh, should tell you about this one I was at over the weekend. There was one up in Crystal River at uh, Crystal River Chevrolet or Crystal Chevrolet. And I guess it's an annual event. And uh, there's probably 300 cars or so. There's some pretty cool stuff. But there's one guy I met there that's got, uh, had a pretty interesting collection. I mean, it worked. You know, the car shows, for the most part, there's some pretty decent stuff. 
And, you know, a lot of the more common stuff. But every once in a while, you find these really, really exceptional cars. Well, this one guy just had a really cool collection of cars. Besides two real-life 69 ZL1s that he didn't have there. He's got them stashed away someplace. But he showed up with a 62 409 four-speed car and a 62 uh, 340-horse 327 Corvette. And uh, he had the dog dishes on it. And uh, so, obviously... The first thing you want to know is if you see dog dishes on the Corvette, is it a big brake car, you know, like road race setup? And it wasn't, but it was done very, very tastefully. I mean, the cars were extremely nice. And, uh, you know, so those are exciting. And the guy that owned them, he was interesting. He knew he knew about the cars. And that's, again, that's where, you know, when you go to these car shows, it's one thing if you have to see a lot of guys that have cars, but when they really, truly get into the cars, then, you know, the, you know, the guy really knows what he's got, you know, because the car is done correctly. Or if it's done with period modifications. I mean, like I, I think I told you guys a couple of years ago, I went up to Illinois to the uh, National Corvette and Muscle Car Show. And it got canceled this past year, but I think it's, they're going to have it this year. And you, you don't realize how little you know about cars until you get to one of these major events. And we get a guy that and he may not. So my knowledge is broad. Because I have to, because I'm a dealer and I buy and sell a lot of stuff and deal with various cars and parts. And, I have, and I'm interested in a lot of different cars as well. But you'll get a guy that's like knows every nut and bolt, every detail in a 65 Shelby. Or you get a guy that knows every nut and bolt, every detail in a 70 Superbird. Or on a 71 Trans Am HO car. That's all they know. But they know everything. So those are kind of like the go-to guys. But, I mean, you really got to appreciate their knowledge because that's dedication and commitment. And that's pretty cool. So, you know, if you, but, you know, if people don't want to take it that seriously. Just go out and buy yourself a nice car that runs and drives, that looks good, have fun with it, and keep it simple and keep it affordable. And just make it a good driver, you know, because I will tell you over and over and over, when you see these restoration jobs, you, they, they turn into a nightmare. Buy a done car if you're not mechanical. If not, um, go for it if you are you know but anyway on that note i think we're going to go uh get our guests on the show we're going to take a burp, 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 another music break and then play a little clip and then we're going to have our special guest on the show here in a few minutes hey you're tuned into nostalgic in cars don't touch that dial and how about a little traffic oh this is a good song tommy what's the name of this one i can't hear you tommy <laughs> i still can't hear you i still can't hear you Rock and roll, that's right. I remember this song in 1973. So, hey, don't touch the dial. We'll be right back.
this. Agent Denham, that is a 1963 Ferrari 250 GT Lusso, owned and raced by the coolest cat who ever lived, Stephen Queen. This was his baby, and now it's my baby. You got Steve McQueen's car parked in your living room? And here I thought you were an ass. I paid a million for it 10 years ago. I wouldn't sell it for 10 times that. We're 65 stories up. How do we get out of here? You don't. This car was taken apart piece by piece and reassembled inside this room. Well, this car will eventually be sold at auction with the rest of your belongings. Only if I'm guilty, Agent Denham. Which I'm not. This is Jochen Maas. Hello. And you hear Nostalgic. Radio und Autos. Wunderbar. <lacht> Wunderbar. Okay, we're back. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And it's time to introduce our special guest. This gentleman's been on our show many times before. And as far as I'm concerned, and many other people as well, I think this is probably the best motorsports commentator on the planet. Delighted to welcome back our good friend, our good buddy, Bob Varsha. Bob, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Robert, all things considered. Good to be back with you. Yeah, all things considered. Okay, so why don't we pick up where we left off? Uh, how are you doing otherwise? Well, I'm doing fine. Uh, my prostate cancer is in remission. I'm building up my strength once again and hoping to resume my broadcasting career. And, um, you know, it's all good. Well, that's good. Did you, uh, were you able to uh, attend any events last year at all? I mean, there was a very few of them, but I mean, there was a couple. But did you go to anything? I did a couple. I, uh, I hosted the... Um, Ferrari uh, Challenge weekend at Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas, and I went to the uh, SECA National Runoffs at Road America, where I split time with uh, young Ryan Marine. Hmm. Okay. So, what are your thoughts on uh, the changes in the automobile industry and racing and everything's going towards EV, electric vehicles? Well, I think there's no denying it. Um, I don't think it's right around the corner. Uh, you have uh, Formula E running. I'm going to be hosting Fox Sports coverage of the new Extreme E electric off-road series. Oh, really? Uh, but, yeah, for now, though, those are, um, you know, they're entertaining experiments, I think you might say. Uh, I don't think the internal combustion engine is going anywhere in particular. But, you know, it's all dependent on what the manufacturers who make the wheels go round want to do. And if they want to go electric, that's where it's going to go. So, in the old days, and I say that kind of affectionately, um, you know, racing sells, okay? And racing is basically a test bed for production cars. And not everything, but a lot of it does find its way into production cars. So. Is, is, and I know Porsche's kind of like uh, stepped up their game here quite a bit with, uh, with the electric vehicles, and particularly mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the racing world. And it's so, again, we're back to racing. Now we're into electric vehicles involved in racing. And I was totally unaware of the off-road uh, electric vehicle racing program. So why don't you share some, uh, some insight and some stories about that, because that's a new one, and I think that's kind of interesting. It's going to be fascinating, Robert. Um, it's the brainchild of the same people who brought you Formula E, open-wheeled electric racing, uh -huh. Alejandro Agag and his Alberto Longo, his partner, and some other people involved. What it's going to be are 550-horsepower off-road vehicles on huge Continental tires. They're going to travel to five 
diverse locations around the world that are threatened by climate change. They'll go to a desert. They'll go to a seashore. They'll go to a glacier. They'll go to the rainforest and so on. Traveling in a ship that contains the entire series of race cars, um, staff, uh, scientists, and their laboratories to conduct environmental research. And the actual racing is going to be pretty cool. If the teams, by rule, will be made up of one male and one female driver, so everybody competes together on a level playing field. All the cars are the same in this initial season. Uh, it'll be sort of a double elimination format, just two cars on track at any one time, leading to a, a final. And uh, it's fascinating, and there's a, there's a tremendous amount of interest in it. I mean, we have two teams from the United States, Andretti United, Extreme E, will be out there, and Chip Ganassi Racing will have a team out there. Really? Okay. Uh, on top of that, three world champions, Jensen Button, Nico Rosberg, and Lewis Hamilton, all have teams. Uh, the latter two will not drive, but Jensen Button, who drove in this year's Baja 1000, by the way, is uh, going to drive for his own Extreme E team. So you've also got nine-time world rally champion Sebastian Loeb out there, two-time world champion Carlos Sainz Sr. will be out there. You've got rally cross champions. It's a tremendously diverse and um, credentialed group of drivers. So I'm really looking forward to it. Who are the sponsors? Now, which are there are there manufactured, major manufactured automobile manufacturers involved in this as well? No, not just yet. Well, there are some manufacturers involved, none from the United States. But again, just like Formula E started with identical cars before they allowed the manufacturers to start tinkering with drive lines and suspensions and aero and things like that. In this first season of uh, Extreme E, all the vehicles will be the same. And they have a plan downstream, uh, I believe it's a three-year plan, to allow the manufacturers to start tinkering with their cars and, um, you know, try to gain the uh, unfair advantage, as they say. Um, let's just jump, digress just for a second. There was an article, and I did not read the whole article. I read part of it, but it didn't really go into detail. Maybe you know a little bit something about it, but Porsche supposedly came out with an article and it's been kind of circulating around that they have developed a fuel in-house in the laboratory and of course i'm well aware of the fact that they actually the germans had this stuff during world war ii they developed in you know in their little lab so to speak they actually developed synthetic fuels back in the day because the fuel shortage were cut off but nonetheless they're saying that they have a new fuel out that would suffice as a uh, fuel for an internal combustion engine that would be that would make the internal combustion engine as efficient and emissions free as or what's the word foot uh, um, the, the footprint thingy um, free as uh, as an EV motor have you read up on that are you familiar with that at all you know I saw the headline I didn't read the article I, I do know that someone is touting an emissions free fuel and that would be a game changer in lots of different ways and would certainly be a positive thing I would think in order to keep uh, internal combustion engines out there with all their noise and spectacle um, but I don't know any of the ins and outs and I certainly don't know the chemistry of such a thing 
But uh, obviously, that's the goal, is to cut emissions, to help the environment, to, uh, to be a bit more responsible about the entire business. And of course, it's not just fuel and emissions, it's also tires and things of that nature. Consumables, I guess you might say. They all have to be constructed in such a way that they don't contribute to the continuing decline of the environment. Okay, um, I was doing. An, I'm doing an appraisal. Or I did, I'm working on a project with uh, on a on a. I'm going to say it's a recreation of a 1905. Uh, it's a Thomas Flyer Speedster replica. Okay, and uh-huh. there was one that was built, supposedly, and there was three that were scheduled total to be built. One supposedly was, the other two were not. Nobody knows the whereabouts. Um, I've been in contact with a couple of uh, um, research um, automotive historian, historical research societies, and I'm trying to gather information on this. But what it did is mm-hmm. took me over to Ormond Beach. Okay, so Ormond Beach basically, a lot of people will say, is the birthplace of speed for all practical purposes, because in the turn of the century, a lot of manufacturers, including manufacturers from Europe, would come over here because it was a nice, clean, flat surface, and it would race on the beach. And so when I was reading, one thing took me to another, which it always does. You know, when you're reading, you start reading, and you continue reading, and something's fascinating, and it just takes you here, here, and here, and here. And uh, so back then, they had steam, they had electric, they had gas, they had diesel, they had all kinds of stuff going on. And, And it was kind of a period where... And, and the and I made, I talked about this a little bit a couple about a month or so on the show. Nobody forced anybody to say, all right, you know, we're doing away with the internal combustion engine. And this is where I take issue. Okay, and there's nobody forced anybody to sit there and and say we're not going to have gas, we're not going to have this, we're not going to have that. We're gonna we're gonna whatever the market dictates. You know, we're we're gonna throw it all out there. And if people want electric, if they want gas, if they want steam, if they want propane, if they want something that runs on chicken doo doo. Um, it's out there, okay? So let the market decide. But I'm, I ha- I'm really starting to get a little irritated with everybody saying, and I'm reading this, by 2025, we're only making electric cars. By 2030, we're only making electric cars. And everything's going in that direction. And But but everybody keeps forgetting about, you know, we still haven't got the battery t- uh, technology down. And then there's, you know, the strip mining involved with that. Then there's the lithium and all the other stuff. And, of course, now they're coming up with new stuff. And, and, and then there's the disposal aspect of that as well. So, um, and then there's the drain on electric because, you know, you got to charge these things. So all this stuff is just like, to me, it seems like they're rushing it and pushing it as opposed to let's just kind of phase it in and then let the market kind of dictate it. But simultaneously, that's why I was kind of excited when I read the Porsche article, because the Porsche article said, hey, we got some fuel here that might just be the answer to the guys that are internal combustion fanatics, you know, for example. And and then, then eventually that'll filter its way into the racing world. And then if they get that perfected, then we can have like a, a balance. And I think that we should be looking more at a balance rather than try to change everything totally. I mean, you know, sh- give me your thoughts on that a little bit. Well, I mean, we're looking at a timeline of decades here before the all-electric option is in place. Right. Um, And as far as the emissions-free fuel, I don't know what the chemical makeup of it is. I don't know whether the ingredients are commonplace or rare. So it's hard for me to say whether it's a uh, a viable alternative Mm -hmm. to electric propulsion. Um, And, yeah, everything has its drawbacks battery technology certainly is going to have to improve or our lifestyle as a motoring public is definitely going to have to change 
But, um, you know, these things are all doable. Mm-hmm. And uh, they create industries, and those industries create jobs. And, you know, the ultimate goal is uh, a more environmentally friendly way of uh, motoring. Well, now, it's carrying over to aviation. It's carrying over to trucking. It's carrying over to, and I heard rumors about uh, in the nautical world, you know, sea uh, ships yep. and stuff like that. So, I mean, it is, the thing is, is that it kind of, if you were, it, like, when you read these stories that I read, uh, you know, when you start doing appraisals and stuff, you get into a lot of history stuff. And I can only imagine what it was like at the turn of the century when the Industrial Revolution was taking place. And, I mean, there was some just amazing innovation taking place. Guys coming up with some great ideas, and 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 one guy would give another guy an idea, and then he would take it and expound on it, and exp- and it would just it was just exponential, you know. And 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 in that regard, where we're at right now, I think we're also kind of going to experience those kind of exciting times because the technology is again taking off and it's getting it's happening exponentially, and we don't know where it's going to go. So from that standpoint, I think it's going to be kind of cool. I agree completely, and that's the great thing about technology is that it creates great new ideas and inspires new visions of what can be done. I mean, let's not forget that electric cars existed basically before the internal combustion petroleum-fueled engine. There wasn't a lot of gas around back in the early days of the automobile after they unhitched the horses from in front. So for a while, there was steam-powered cars and electric-powered cars, and eventually the petroleum version won out. But uh, that's a complicated history, and um, that's as these things always are. <laughs> you know, where, where's it going to go? What we, we all may be driving electric cars in the future and thinking, why did it take so long? Why didn't we do this a long time ago? This is great. Well, there's, that's true, too. So what else is, uh, have you been up to? I mean, do you have any other ho- new hobbies, or is there anything else you've been working on? Any well, book? You know, Are you like working on a book? Um, in a very roundabout way, yes, I am. Okay. You want to share, some, but, uh, uh, share something on that? Um, no, nah, right now I'm just at the point where I'm trying to write down every story I can remember, at least in a bare-bones form. Um, I got to tell you, Ernest Hemingway wrote many years ago that writing is the hardest work there is, and I got to believe it. Um, it does take a tremendous amount of effort. But uh, in the meantime, I've been uh, trying to line up some broadcast opportunities. I'm going to go back to Barrett Jackson for the Scottsdale auction. Oh, good. At, uh, the 24th through the 27th. Uh, and shortly after that, I'll go to the studio in Charlotte to host the Fox coverage of Extreme E. And hopefully there'll be some other opportunities for me out there. Is it, is it hard to, I mean, if you've been in and out of the industry a little bit, you know, and, and, and you can share this with a little bit, of, and because you said, you know, when, you, when you're looking in terms of opportunity, I would look at someone like you as like, you know, you're kind of like, a, you're kind of like the, you know, Chris Economaki kind of guy, you know, I mean, he was there, he was in the, in the mix with a lot of stuff. And uh, you've got a name, a reputation. You're a brand. Bob Varsha is a brand. You know, does that does that play in your favor? Does that hurt you a little bit? Do they want younger guys? Do they like the seniors? I mean, you know, you got to kind of wonder that because it's like uh, me. I gravitate to the guys that I kind of know. I've been around for a long time, and you're one of them. So uh, tell us about that. I mean, share that that uh, insight. Well, first of all, it's the highest praise to compare me to Chris Economaki, who was a great friend and a mentor. Um, 
Yes. The short answer is, you know, having a brand, having been around for a while, maybe having a little gravitas, little name recognition certainly doesn't hurt. Uh, but I would also suggest that there is, um, I don't know, maybe it's an economic imperative out there that um, they're looking for younger and uh, cheaper and, you know, new new faces. That's something you're always up against and something, frankly, I didn't think about very much because I had all the work I needed. But then, uh, you know, after a year and a half being treated for cancer and kind of being out of the public eye for a while, and the pandemic, which basically basically crushed everyone's schedules and budgets, uh, which made uh, for a different industry on the broadcast side, you know, it makes things a little more difficult when you get your hand in the air and say, hey, I'm right here. Well, you know, but I mean, I would think that, you know, because of your expertise, your background, I mean, you've been in the industry for so long, people like, you have this credibility. So when Bob Varsha speaks, it's kind of like E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton says something, people listen. When Bob Varsha says something, they listen. I mean, I've got some, on my thingy here, i got people saying, so great to hear Bob Varsha, you know. I mean, you have, you know, a lot of following, and people are, are just, you know, I, it's kind of like an old friend, you know. You just, I'd rather listen to you and, and, sure. and know you have the real deal. I mean, it, here's a sad thing, and we talked about this once before, because I have never really had any young race car drivers that I've interviewed. And I will tell you what happened was, and I'm not going to mention any specific name for anything like that because of their affiliations, but you can't talk to them. They have no substance. And I don't mean that in any disrespect. Sure, they can get behind the car with all this technology, and, and, and the car pretty much does everything for them. And, but they don't have anything else they can talk to. There's a handful of them. Now, I had the opportunity at, Cir at, uh, at the races at uh, um, Circus America a few years ago. I met Nico Rosberg, and I met, I um, uh, can't think of his name right now, the F1 driver for uh, uh, Mercedes. We just, you just mentioned his name. Lewis He's Hamilton. Yeah, Lewis Hamilton. Okay. Lewis is in the cars. He's a pretty nice guy, and he, he, you could actually have an in-depth conversation with him. I was impressed with him. And uh, and I'm still trying to go through his PR people. I'd love to have him on the show, but he's got a very regular schedule. And um, but a lot of them don't have any substance. When I look at these older guys that have been around for a while, and I don't, you know, I mean, like yourself and, and me, me too. I mean, I've been around for a long time. We can kind of talk about stuff that went on 20, 30, 40 years ago that people can relate to. And and you're and you look at your demographics and look at your audience. You know, so that's where I'm kind of going with this. Well, you know, that's life, isn't it? You go yep. through life and you have experiences. Uh, I like to joke that looking at uh, televised races from 30, 35, even 40 years ago, it takes me a second and I think, wait a minute, I was there. <laughs> or I was actually calling that race. Or, you know, and that's, that's just the way life is. But I have to say that that experience, that gravitas, that... that brand um, doesn't seem to count for all that much anymore. You know, it's the almighty dollar now, and if they can get someone cheaper, um, maybe they don't care whether or not that person can reel off personal experiences and relationships with legendary drivers and other figures in the sport. It's just kind of the way of the world. You well, hope to be able to get to the end of your career and retire on your terms, and some people get to and others don't. 
Well, you know, like you were, like when you guys would call in shots. I mean, you and David would sit in the booth there. It was a matchup that was down in the in the in the pits there, you know. And he, and there's this synergy there, you know. And mm-hmm. you got to have the right people. And and Matchett's got experience because he worked with racing teams. You know, David was behind the wheel of a car, and and you're the foremost commentator. So you know, between the three of you guys, you guys got it covered. And to me, that that's that. I mean, if I was looking to put a team together, that would be it. <laughs> well, it was fun, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, Matchett was in the booth with David and I, and we had uh, several pit reporters over the years. Peter Windsor, um, well, Will Buxton, who is currently in the world with FOM. Uh, we had some great guys, and we had some great times. What, uh, if you want to share with us a, a real memorable moment, I mean, that was kind of like, uh, that caught all you guys off by surprise on a, on a, on a, on a race that you were calling? A particular race that caught us by surprise? Yeah, I mean, something that was really like, well, uh, was like, wow, okay. I mean, you know that wow moment type thing? Sure. Uh, you know, I get asked a lot about my my best and worst moments uh, covering races. Um, my best Formula One moment was probably the 2008 season finale in Brazil, where uh, poor Felipe Massa did everything in his power to try to clinch the world championship, but Lewis Hamilton managed to recover to finish sixth, which was the absolute minimum he needed to take the title back. And he got it in the last corner of the last lap of the last race of the year. And it was just riveting television. Um, and then, of course, you had those those uh, moments at the other end of the spectrum, like Imola uh, in 1994 when we lost Ayrton Senna and Roland Ratzenberger and... Uh, probably the blackest weekend in Formula One in half a century. Um, so, you know, there are good and bad reasons that certain races stick out in my mind. If you had to, are there, are there, if, are there other areas in the, in, the, in the motorsports world that you would not mind working other than commentating? In other words, other than, other than being a sports commentator, I mean, you know, in that regard, what other area in the motorsports world you know, around that whole racing series or industry, so to speak, what, what, if you had to pick, choose another aspect of the profession, the field, where would it be? <laughs> I'd like to be a successful team owner. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, there isn't a whole lot I'm qualified for. I mean, the, uh, the PR folks have, have lots of fun. Um, you know, the, the, the driver is the glamorous role. The, the mechanic is the knuckle-busting role. Yeah, I'd like to be the boss. The boss. Okay, a team owner. Sit up there in, the, yeah, in my luxury box and watch my car go down. <laughs> well, now, your son was racing for a while, too, right? You were kind of helping him out there a little bit and kind of... Yeah, my son, Matt, raced um, for a couple of years. Um, it ran at the Rolex 24 at Daytona, ran in the, what was then the Pro Mazda series. Uh-huh. Um, won some races, you know, went along and finally one day he said to me you know dad I, I i've done this i see what the life of a journeyman racer is like you know sitting on the phone all winter trying to line up a drive for the next year he says you know i don't think that's the life i want to have so uh he moved out west and lives in jackson wyoming where he sells big fancy houses and skis every day he can because that's really his first love oh really he's a skier huh 
Yeah, well, he'd like to be a commentator, but uh, we haven't gotten to that <laughs> point yet. A ski commentator. There you go. Yeah, actually, we, we, we kick the idea of a podcast around from time to time. Okay. Um, well, wait I'm a not sure my son, despite living with me all those years, understands that it's harder than it looks. How much preparation did you have to do? And I remember when I first met you, it was at the Roar of the, the, the Roar to the 24, whatever they called it back in the day. And I yep. think it was around 2011, 2012 or something like that. And we talked a little bit. And, and you said, you used the term, you're a color. And, and I didn't know what that meant exactly. And the color commentator basically is the guy that's kind of like, you know, you kind of have to know a little bit. And you lead people in a direction, and then hopefully the smarter guy can take it and go to the next area. So then that makes everybody look kind of like they know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's the art behind the, uh, the profession. Uh, I'm actually sort of the host and play-by-play -play guy. The color guys are guys like David Hobbs and Steve Matchett, who each have their areas of expertise. It's part of my job to set them up. Um, People often ask me, you know, what my favorite sport of all the different sports I've covered might be. And I, I, my answer is typically my job doesn't change much from sport to sport. I can be doing ski racing or water ski jumping or swimming or gymnastics or track and field or motor sports. My job is just to get the who, what, where, when, and how out there. And it's up to that commentator next to me who has the athletic blue ribbon, the ex-driver, the ex-mechanic, you know, the ex-gold medalist, to tell me and the audience whether what we're witnessing is good or bad. Now, over the years, you would, I think you mentioned you did do, I think, the bicycle race at, in France at one time? I did, yeah. I did the Tour de France in 2001, and it was just magnificent. So how do you prepare for something like that? <laughs> well, you read everything you can get your hands on. Um, and my role in that broadcast was kind of different in that I was basically, my job was to get us in and out of commercial breaks while my colleagues, Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin, were putting together the English language commentary narrative for the rest of the world. So we would just dump in and out of whatever they were talking about to get our American commercial breaks in. And there were, you know, a few occasions, I think, when I demonstrated my lack of experience with the nuances of big-time pro cycling. Uh, and it's a beautiful sport with a lot of intricacies that uh, I learned very quickly over the month of the Tour de France. Um, but, you know, you just learn as much as you can, ask questions. And the Internet is a huge help in all of this. You know, before the Internet, oh, man, I don't know how we did it. You, know, <laughs> you read Racer Magazine or whatever it was, you know, to, to learn what you could, pick up every book you could. And that was part of the challenge that I enjoyed in this profession was having to quickly get up to speed about what the sport's about, what its history is, who the stars are, all that sort of thing. That was a tremendous challenge, and I enjoyed that a lot. So when you, when you get, let's say, signed up for, let's say, like the Tour de France, how much time do they give you to prepare for this, would you say? I mean, realistically, I mean, do they, because, I mean, they can't expect you to walk in there cold turkey. Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, a couple of months, typically, you okay. know, you plan as far out as you can. 
Um, you never quite have enough time, but um, typically there's, you know, there would be enough. And you'd, you'd go in and rely on your skills as much as your knowledge to cover things. I mean, I, here's, here's an example. Now, given the pandemic and all of the associated um, problems that it's caused, a lot of the sports you see on television are not called by announcers who are actually on site looking at the the athletes and the competition in person. They're sitting in a studio somewhere, safe and warm. <laughs> and if you listen closely, you can kind of hear what the difference is. Uh, for example, I was watching a college basketball game the other night, and typically the announcers will say, okay, there's Smith passing to Jones, and on the dribble up goes Oregon Fuss and jams it. But if you're doing it off a monitor from a remote location and you're doing lots of games, which is where the preparation thing comes in, it can be really hard to recognize some of those athletes. So instead you'll hear the announcers using phrases like, and so Temple brings the ball down the court and goes into their offense. They're not using names until they're really sure of who it is they're looking at. Ah. And that's because they're doing so much remotely. I mean, NBC's Olympics coverage is going to be done, by and large, remotely. They won't be sending all of their announcers into Tokyo or wherever the next Olympics winds up being. Um, and that's part of the fun of watching televised sports for me. And I've been doing a lot of that over the last year and a half. Do you, would it be fair to say that you get better over time? Or is it status quo? I mean, do you, is there ways to improve yourself? And oh, do you ever make a boo-boo? <laughs> oh, my God. Have I made boo-boos? Probably the one that sticks out was covering Champ Car back in the day, working with Danny Sullivan. And I happened, and as the words were coming out of my mouth, I couldn't believe it. I said... Something along the lines of, of course, these cars are not turbocharged, which, of course, they were. And then I looked over at Danny Sullivan, Mr. Spin and Win, the 1985 <laughs> yeah. Indianapolis 500 winner, a man who was stared death in the face on the racetrack, and he looked at me like somebody had pointed a gun at him. <laughs> his mouth <laughs> was open. What are you saying? Uh, you know, the, the, the thing is, people ask me what the... Uh, what the easy races are to do. The easiest race to do is a good race with lots of passing, a lot of action. The toughest races to do, or any sport, not just motorsports, are the bad races, the boring ones, the snoozers, because that's when your mind starts to wander and you're trying to think of something to say, and, you know, if I will get you 10, you're going to say something that's just dead wrong. Now, a lot of announcers will tell their colleagues, hey, you know, just ignore it if I say something wrong, but... I don't like that idea at all. I want my, my fellow commentators to correct me, as I would correct them if they said something that's incorrect, because it's a disservice to the viewer if you don't. It's uh, the Olympics. Have you ever had a desire to, I think we only got about 30 seconds left, but have you ever had a desire to, to commentate and uh, work the Olympics? Oh, absolutely. That was one of my dream jobs. In fact, Lee Diffie at NBC got my dream job, doing all my favorite sports, including the Olympics, which I almost had the chance to participate in back in 1976. Um, I have done Olympic trials, but not the games themselves.
Oh man, when's this when's this off road thing that you're talking about? Uh, it's um, it happens Easter weekend. It's going to be tape delayed slightly, and I'm not sure of the actual air date, but it'll be sometime after Saturday, April third, probably sometime the following week, and probably on FS1. Okay, and then you're going to be at Bear Jackson in May in Scottsdale, right? Actually, I'm going to be at Bear Jackson in two weeks, Wednesday through Saturday, the 24th through the 27th. And they have an amazing lineup of cars. Oh, wow. Wait a minute. Sebring's coming up, too. 12-hour race. Are you going to be at that? No, sadly. Sebring's one of my favorite places and my favorite events. But uh, I have no gig, so I'll be watching. Okay. Well, Bob, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic. Let's call you again in another you know, five or six months. Let's see how you're doing, see what's going on, and then uh, tell us some more stories, and let's talk more about the, uh, the world of commentating. Sure. Anytime, Robert. All right. If people want to get a hold of you, how do they find out more about you and how do they reach you if they want to? Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm on uh, Facebook. uh, I'm on Instagram. I use my own name. Um, So I'm easy to find. That's good. All right. Well, Bob, you take care. Best of luck. All the best, of course. And again, thank you for coming on our show this evening. We sure appreciate it. Good to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, all my listeners, thanks for tuning in tonight. Uh, Nostalgia Getting Cars, the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports. Don't forget to follow Bob Varsha. He is, like, in my opinion, the best motorsports commentator. Just a cool guy. And uh, he's, you know, just... You gotta, he's just extremely professional, super guy. But anyway, don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday night on Tan Talk Radio Network between 7 and 8 p.m. And uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, want to see some of the car shows? And don't forget to check out our Facebook page and all that other good stuff. And uh, we'll see you at some of the races. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.